Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. We are studying through the book of Jeremiah. We've come to, we came to a section that really talks about how God has invested his love, he's invested his grace into his people, but his people have turned to other gods, and God doesn't call it just disobedience, he calls it spiritual adultery. And so, instead of just rejecting them, he actually speaks to them and says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with covenantal faithfulness and kindness. And then he makes a new covenant with them. And, and, and here's what's so fascinating to me about that covenant. He makes the covenant. He then keeps the covenant. And then he gives the benefits of the covenant to those who will receive him by faith. You don't, if you're honest, you're not a covenant keeper. You're a covenant breaker. And so here we are, people who say, Lord, I trust you, I believe in you, and all of the benefits that he has achieved by his covenant keeping all belong to you. So how do I respond to that? How do I, how do I grow deeper in that? Well, you cannot do so unless you begin to learn what obedience is. And many of us, we really don't understand obedience very well, particularly biblical or relational obedience. Many of us, uh, we're obedient to the extent that we're fearful of punishment or we're fearful of consequences. So we, in a sense, will restrain ourselves or we'll not do certain things. But when you really... When you really are obedient, it is radically different. Now, I got married at 21, and I was really surprised that my wife thought I was going to be obedient. (laughs) Now, she wasn't thinking I should be obedient to her. Her idea was I was to be obedient to the right things as she explained the right things to me. And so I did uh, what every immature male would do. I ignored her. I delayed her. I argued with her. She would never relent, so I would eventually do what she was telling me or asking me to do, but I would do it complaining, grumbling, griping. I would do it in commercials instead of during the football game. Uh, And then once I had completed this grumbling, complaining, griping obedience, then I would expect points for it. And she would go, points? You don't get any points for acting like that. Because she really looked at it and said, that wasn't obedience. That was you doing it because you had to. It was doing it because I was making you do it. You did it poorly, and you did it with horrible attitude, but I wanted her to alert CNN. (laughs) I put a dish in the dishwasher, you know? Just simple things that I would want this major kind of approval for and, and points for, and 
And Lisa's looking at me like I'm a crazy man. Because like, what? That isn't obedience. And what I realized is I really didn't know how to be obedient to anyone. But especially not to God. Because he knows my motives. I don't even have to grumble for him to know I'm grumbling. He, he knows my delays, my tactics, my do-it-my-own-way kind of stuff. And he knows that often what I'm trying to do is to score leverage so he has to do what I want him to do. And you see, if that's what your idea of obedience is, it's either fear-based, which fear and love cannot exist in the same heart, or it's reward-based, which again would completely negate your relationship with God on the basis of grace. So if you're just doing what you're doing so God will do what you want him to do, then you're no longer under grace, but you're under law. And you will not survive a relationship with God on the basis of law. You must come to God, and you must come to him through Jesus' covenant-keeping so that the benefits that Jesus has one hard fought, hard fought and won for you becomes yours. Yeah. And that is only through grace, only by grace through faith. Yeah. And so I wanted us to think through, okay, having become people who follow Jesus, who love God, what does it look like for us to be obedient? And you cannot go deep with God if you refuse to be obedient. So I, we come to Jeremiah chapter 35. And there's this really unusual group of people and an unusual story in the midst of it. I'm just going to read a few excerpts from 35. It's worth reading the whole thing, but I'm going to just read some of these excerpts. So this is God speaking to Jeremiah. And he says, Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. Now, the leader of the Rechabites then speaks to Jeremiah at the, like the banquet hall where all the wine has been laid out. And the, the, this, this leader of the Rechabites says this, Our ancestor Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us, You're not to drink wine, you or your children ever. Neither shall you build houses or settle down, planting fields and gardens and vineyards. Don't own property, live in tents, as nomads, so that you will live well and prosper in a wandering life. And we've done it. Done everything Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded. We've listened, and we've done everything he commanded us. Then God speaks, having seen the response of the Rechabites to Jeremiah, and he says this. He's speaking to Judah. He says, what do I get from you? Deaf ears. The descendants of Jonadab carried out to the letter what their ancestor commanded, but this people ignores me. So who are the... Are you tracking with me so far? I love this story. So these Rechabites, they're a nomadic tribe, and what they were were a guild of metal workers. They had incredible craftsmanship and skill in the area of metalwork, and they would work on chariots they could build and and restore chariots, they made spears, they made javelins, they could fix anything that was metal. And they traveled from village to village. But what they were doing is they were living as closely as they could to the lifestyle of Abraham, 
of Isaac and Jacob. They wanted to live in the heritage of their patriarchs, of the patriarchs of their faith. And so their ancestors, whose, whose name was Jonadab, or some places it's Jehonadab, he gave them this instruction, don't drink any wine. Um, some of the commentators said that uh, you know, the, the drinking of wine in some ways uh, is something that uh, loose, will loosen your lips. Loose lips sink ships kind of thing. And uh, because they had this specialized knowledge of, of metal work and all of these things, he, he didn't want them ever sharing the secrets of the tribe because the tribe could basically live on the economy of their metalworking. And so they, they lived this life where there was no luxury in their life. There was no softness. They lived with incredible discipline, and they always lived in compliance to their family tradition. As a matter of fact, they did it for almost 300 years, between 250 and 300 years. Now, when God said to, to Jeremiah, offer them wine and invite them, Jeremiah went out and got the best wine, rented a banquet hall, and filled it up with pitchers and pitchers of wine and called these people into this banquet. And so when they come in, and all of the wine, I'm pretty sure if God was paying, it was pretty good wine. <laughs> so they come in, and instead of going for the wine, they start quoting their ancestor. And they begin to you know, really explain their family values. And uh, they had kept this for such a long period of time. Now, their ancestor was a significant man. He was a man who lived in a very turbulent time. He lived in the days of King Ahab and Jezebel, where the, the worship of God, of Yahweh, had been supplanted by worship of all these other gods. There were high places, there were temples, there were all kind of all kinds of evil worship going on. And Jonadab was one of the 7,000 who never bent his knee to Baal. He, he was one of those that God singled out as having never lost his devotion to Yahweh. And so when the time came, Jonadab was one of the, the men who uh, fought with Jehu, who brought down the, uh, these, these false religions, these high places, and eventually brought down Queen Jezebel as well. And he's the one that had called his people into this lifestyle which they were living for hundreds of years. Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit more. But I want you to, to hear and think through this. His desire was not to make them have lives that were less than life. His desire was to give them a way to have an excellent life. See, one of the issues that many of us have is we want to have an excellent life, but we don't understand that the only way to have an excellent life is to have a selfless life. What most of us believe is if we will, we will satisfy our selfishness, then life will be excellent. The opposite is true. You know, the more you indulge self, the less satisfied you are. And the greater the sense of understanding how to lose yourself in order to gain all that the Father has for you is how life is really lived. And until our minds go against that kind of intuitive thing that says, I have to live for me, 
and I have to protect me. Until we can have something greater, some impulse greater than the self-satisfying uh, impulse, then we will continue to live less than excellent lives. Now, what we see is that these, these Rechabites understood that the word or their word meant something. And I, I want you to understand that if you're, if you're truly going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to begin to realize that everything you say has power. That your word has power. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn to one of your neighbors and I want you to look them in the eye and I want you to say to them, your word has power. One more time. Your word has power. Now, why I say that is because some of you think you are powerless so you get louder. And some of you are power, feel powerless, so you get quieter. No one's listening to me. No one cares about what I'm saying. I want you to know that your word always has power. Even your silence has power. But here's the thing. If your word is insecurity... If your word is, I'm not worth anything, I don't mean anything, your words will fill the atmosphere with insecurity and worthlessness. If your words are, I am, I am great, I am grandiose, I am arrogant, then your words will fill the atmosphere with grandiosity and arrogance. Only when your words are humble, when you measure them, when you know what they mean, in a way, you'll only be a mature and truly excellent person if you actually turn your intentions into commitments. Anybody that ever says to you, well, I meant to do this, who cares? It didn't happen. I can't trust you. Your word is not trustworthy. Why does Jesus say... Don't swear on the temple. Don't swear on the holy place. Because people who have to swear are people who have lied. You know, when someone's word can't be trusted, you say to them, do you swear? Do you promise? Which is a reflection of, I don't really believe you. And then they'll go, cross my heart, hope to die. <laughs> Many of you should be dead. I swear on my mother's life. I didn't like my mother, but I swear. <laughs> you understand, once you start swearing on something, you're showing that your word cannot be trusted. That your intentions are not commitments. You're like, he's being mean again today. <laughs> Do you understand what Jesus is saying when he says then, let your yes be yes. In other words, when you say yes, it's already done. When you say no, it's not going to be done. But either way, I can absolutely trust that you understand the power of your word. 
That's what the Rechabites, you see, are about. They have given their word, and for 300 years they have kept their word. And guess what happens? When they come into the city of Jerusalem where everybody lives by the whims and the crowds and they have this incredibly fragmented society and nobody knows what's right and wrong and nobody knows what's true and false, the Rechabites come in and everybody goes, those people are different. There is a distinction about them. And the beginning of the power of that distinction is that their word is their action. You see, I think today the Lord is calling you not only to go deep with him, but to have a distinction that is discernible in the crowd. That it should be known that you are a person of your word. Think about this with me. There are so many people who make ungodly oaths, lie on an oath, they swear by something. See, when, when your yes is yes and your no is no, then your word is enough. Think about all the vows that we take in the presence of God. Courtroom vows, weddings, consecration to office, ordination, consecration, all of these things. The Bible says an oath is actually an act of supreme worship. When you make an oath, you are appealing to the final justice of Almighty God. Therefore, you have to begin to realize that not only do your words have power, your words mean something. We have to measure what we're saying, our intentions have to become our commitments so that people know that what I say, I do. And what I do, I've counted the cost of what I'm doing. There's a story that illustrates this so powerfully in a book by Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington was one of the great men of all time. And he wrote a book about kind of memoirs of, of the of years of slavery and stuff like that. And he writes about this man who uh, was enslaved to a master in Virginia. And the master and he made a contract. And the contract is that this, this man would pay off his master and buy his freedom, and the master would let him go and work and earn money. He found out that he could make more money in Ohio, so he went from Virginia to Ohio, and he was working to pay off the, the, the price that the master had set on his life. In the midst of his work, the Emancipation Proclamation was, was set forth, so he was actually set free. He was no longer on, owned by anybody, and he was free. But this man worked until he got the last dollar, and he took it to the man that he had made a contract with. And all of his friends said, why are you doing this? We're free. You do not have to pay this man. And the man looked at them and said, I gave my word. See, it was to his disadvantage, ostensibly, but it actually wasn't. Because here is a man who was distinctive from every other man because his word meant something. Therefore, anybody that knew him would know that if he said something, it was done. And if he said it wasn't going to be done, it wasn't going to be done. You know, I think there has to be, like the Rechabites, like this man, there has to be something in your life that is so distinctive from the crowd. See, the crowds live by whims. They throw out, oh, I swear, I promise, yes, no, and none of it means anything. Because once there's a cost to the oath, 
then the oath is abandoned. A covenant is an oath. It's a promise. It's an act of worship. Your words come from the fact that you are made in the image of God. And when God speaks, it's how he works. When God says, son, there's a son. When God says, there are seas, there are seas. His work is, his word is his action. And to be distinctive as a people, to be known as different, it has to be that your words have power and that your words actually mean something. Well, the second thing that we began to see, if you really want to live an excellent life and you want to have this deep life with God and obedience, then you have to begin to understand that God loves structure. God doesn't love an unstructured life. You cannot really enjoy the benefits of, of precious water or anything else without a container. There has to be something formed so there can be something to, uh, that fills it. And so many of us have lived our lives in, with no authority, with no submission, with no sense that there's anything that we really answer to in an ultimate sort of way. But here are these Rechabites who for over 250 years said, our ancestors said, and they lived by this godly man who spoke life into his tribe. And they had been successful. They had been safe. Matter of fact, they had never lived inside of Jerusalem until this time when the Babylonians were destroying all the territory outside of Jerusalem. It was the only safe place left. So they come into Jerusalem, and everybody sees these folks are radically different. But you see, they live by not only a structure, but they live by a promise. The only promise, uh, commandment with a promise in the Ten Commandments is the honor your father and mother. When you are obedient and not rebellious, when you're under authority, not trying to always break from authority, the Bible says you will live long and maybe even like the Vulcans, and prosper. <laughs> but you've got to understand this. Obeying God does not give you approval with God. Obeying God doesn't make God obligated to you. Obeying God is responding to the promises that he's made and believing that because he said it, it's already true. Amen. We activate, we don't, we don't create by our faith. We activate, we get access. In other words, many of us have lived and been a part of families that do not have a good tradition. We have lived and been part of abuse and neglect. We've lived in a part of disrespect and dishonor and all kinds of things in our families. But you have a choice always. You can decide, I will live a crappy life because I come from a crappy family. Or you can say, wait, the generation of righteousness can begin with me. There has to be a Jonadab. In every family that says, I will not bend the knee to the crowd. I will not bend the knee to the God of this age. 
I will not let my family be a part of that which will not make us excellent, but I will teach self selflessness by living selflessly. Do you know that one of the number one ways that Satan gets in your life is through rebellion? The Bible says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So it's not merely I'm disobeying. I'm actually giving access through my disobedience and my rebellion for other kinds of curses to come into my life. And the truth is that if home... And if your tribe is not a place of honor, then you will take that dishonor from your home and your family to your work, to your school, to everywhere that you go. But if your home is a place of honor and safety, a place of structure, a place of discipline, a place where there's gratitude, a place where there is learning how and developing obedience so where that, that those intentions actually become commitments then your home will become a place of impact for generations to come. Look at, the, look at the example. Here we have the Rechabites in Jeremiah 35. They come, they are, they are set apart people. They are distinctive in their call from God. In Nehemiah 3.14, God entrusts to the Rechabites the rebuilding, of the, temp, uh, rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem. So their faithfulness and their structure as a family not only lasts for 250 to 300 years, but another 70 years of captivity so that when the time comes, they are so intact structurally that they rebuild the walls that have been destroyed in Jerusalem and it's done in like 52 days. Come on, that's pretty good. And you may, you may say, well, I don't have a Jonadab as a descendant. Guess what that means? You're it. You're here today. You get to decide what kind of tribe you're going to lead. And until Jesus returns, you can be the ancestor who sets a course for things that only God can do through your family. So, what about the use of alcohol in this thing? There are a lot of people I meet like, yeah, you're a Christian, you can't drink. God told Jeremiah, go buy alcohol. <laughs> they put it forth in the temple. So in other words, drinking, partaking of alcohol can't be a sin or else God's the, God's the, you know, the dealer. <laughs> so I, God doesn't forbid the use of alcohol, of wine. He doesn't forbid it. But at the same time, he makes it absolutely clear that you're free to abstain from it. Here's the issue with this, and this is why this is so important, is some of us will begin to say, God, I don't drink. I must be a good person. God, he's drinking. I'm far more spiritual than him. And the moment it becomes comparative righteousness is the moment neither of you are in, in obedience. I mean, whether you homeschool, you don't homeschool, 
whether you, you know, you dance or you don't. When I dance, it is a sin, but that's different. It's that bad. Okay, I would go to movies, play cards, whatever it is that people want to put on you to tell you that's what a Christian does. The minute you do that, it has become disobedience. Because now you're saying, this is the way you gain approval. Let me tell you, you're all covenant breakers. You're all covenant breakers. There's not a one of you who can, by the law, even get your face in front of God. Jesus has gone before God, kept the covenant for you, and, and, and now you get to decide, okay, God, what are you asking of me? And when he asks you to homeschool your kids, you're not more spiritual than someone who sends their kids to public school. If he asks you not to drink and, and, and you're being obedient to him, guess what? That's your path. And there are many of us, we should never touch any drink whatsoever because we become drunks. And you should be so aware of that. You say, Lord, this is, this is an area in which I am going to abstain because it's good for me. <laughs> I mean, think about there's really a strong admonition in the scriptures to avoid drunkenness. You know, it says it's foolishness, it's a waste. It says it's immoral, that it can even lead to death. Look, I would apply that to getting high. Because when you are rendered passive, when you are out of control, somebody else is going to take control. And when you have given yourself to illicit things, to lose, in a sense, reality then the enemy will step in with lies and be a thief in your life. The Word of God says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why do I, why do I want to be drunk with wine? Well, I want to be drunk so I can depress my experience of this world. I want to not feel the pain. I want to not remember, or, or I want to remember, whatever it is, but in some way, I don't want to deal with reality or face the pain or face the difficulty, so I depress my experience. And the Bible says, don't depress it. Be filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can face it. So that you can overcome it. So that you not have just your own mental, emotional, and spiritual resources of your own life, but you're now tapping in to the limitless resources of the Holy Spirit. When you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, you are baptized into the love of God. You understand, God doesn't just have love, God is love. So to be baptized in the Spirit is to be baptized, immersed in the love of God. So that now you face everything through his love instead of trying to prove his love by looking at his love through your circumstances. I'm talking fast. Is that all right? Are you hearing me? So what happens is we have to be distinctive in this. Our distinction isn't whether you drink or you don't drink. Our distinction is how loving you are to the others who have a different admonition than you. The one who drinks, you go, I love you, brother. 
the one who doesn't drink, I love you, brother, but I'm not inviting you to my party. No. Just, just, just seeing if you're awake. If you're tracking with me on this. Listen, these two things are so important. You know, the structure of family is what really most people who are in recovery need to recover structure. Because you cannot really succeed in life without structure. You know, when you get bored, you lose your sobriety. When you get angry, when, you, when hunger is there and you're not able to fulfill it, you lose your sobriety. God has always said we are not to live our life alone. We're to live it in community. We're to live it as brothers and sisters together. That there should be someone you can turn to when you're starting to lose your grip. But someone whose word you trust, right? Because if their yes is not yes and their no is not no, then me speaking with them is not going to help me. Do you see how this fits together? Are you starting to see? Well, one of the philosophers said it this way. He said, modern civilization has raised the material level of millions of people beyond the expectations of the past. Has it, though, succeeded in making people happier? In some respects, we might have to say it has accomplished the worst or the reverse. See, people are less happy, though they have more. Eugene Peterson writes this. He says, will you not let God's command develop in you a life of holy obedience instead of letting the crowd drag you into a sloppy laziness? The distinctiveness of the Rechabites was immediately apparent in Jerusalem. Isn't it time, you and me, that we retrieve our distinctiveness? Not just in, in being different from other people, but being devoted to the call of God on your life. And the reason we do this is not so that, it's not so that we'll get favor with God or points with God or whatever it is, but the reason we do this is that when you are living out your call with God and from God, then you are more alive than ever. This is what it means to be fully alive, is to be fully submitted to God. But how do you get there? Well, the only way you can get there, according to this teaching of the Rechabites, is you have to have the listening skills of the sons of Jonadab. There can be no obedience without listening. Listening is one of the hard, talking is not hard, listening is hard. Many of us are, are really good at tuning people out, particularly God. You see, you cannot just simply live in kind of an extra biblical sense of listening to God because people get deceived by voices. Many of us don't realize we have the voice of our mother in our head, our father, our coach, a teacher. We have all of these other voices when your head should be the safest place on earth for you. There should only be two voices allowed in your mind, the voice of God and your own voice. But you will not know the voice of God if you don't know the Word of God. You will, you will actually feel like when Satan is accusing you, it's God's voice. There are times when people come up to me and say, I'm sure that God told me to do this. And I'm like, no, his word says not to do that. And he would not contradict his word. But listening is not easy for us. But obedience is impossible without listening. 
I don't know what it is about many of us as men. I know this is one of the issues I have is that Lisa will be telling me something for years and then a male friend will come up and say the same thing and I will go, wow, that is so wise. Man, that is, oh, I'm just so glad. And she's sitting there going, I told you that for years. Or so many times she'll, she'll be talking, and in the midst of her talking, I'm going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But she's saying what I need to do, and I missed that entire part of it. And then so I go off to do it, and I say, what did you want me to do? And she goes, you never listened to me. And the truth is you cannot be obedient and you cannot fulfill obedience if you're unable or unwilling to listen. I mean, if it's that frustrating to each of us when we feel like no one's paying attention, how do you pay attention to someone? Well, that's when you give weight to the words they're saying. You turn off the TV, you turn off the radio, you look them in the eye. You then do what they ask you to do. That's how someone knows that their words matter to you. What we see here is a contrast of a people who called themselves the people of God but were unfaithful to God and a people who had been faithful. It's fidelity versus infidelity. Well, you know, I think from this passage you realize, and from Jeremiah, there is a way to weary God. And he says, you weary me because you don't listen. You're not listening. You have deaf ears. And this isn't mere listening. It's always that the response is, I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. So I wanted you to see this picture. Are you tracking with me this morning? Yeah. So I want you to see this picture. This is older than I am. This used to be a, a, for RCA Victor, this was their, their commercial or their advertising for years and years. And it's an old kind of gramophone, phonograph sort of a thing. And what they were saying there was that the master's voice was so faithfully reproduced that the dog thought it was the master. And that the fidelity was so high that it could be no distinction between the voice of the master. And I... I, I just saw that and I said, wow, that's powerful. When you start to think, are we people who are faithful to our master's voice? Do we know the difference between his voice and every other voice? Now, if you're listening to me, and I, I, I am trying to convict you, because disobedience will keep you from excellence. Disobedience will not make you feel alive. It will kill you. But you and I, if we're honest, dis disobedience is easier than obedience. And so it becomes really important for you and I to start to understand out of, out of what basis does an impulse or does a, a motivation, a fire, come to be obedient? Well, for me, it comes out of the teaching of the scriptures about what I have been redeemed from. And what it costs to redeem me. Now last night, when Isaiah and Francesca got married, um, I always, when I do a wedding, I always ask the Lord, what's the word of promise for these, this couple? And 
So when I was meeting with them, they told me the word, so I didn't even have to listen to the Lord. And, uh, <laughs> but the word they, they had, and it was a powerful word, is the word redemption. That God, through their marriage, was redeeming their lives. And so they said, would you, would you speak on that? So I'm going to give you just a snippet here at the end, because if you're not being obedient out of a desire to be obedient, you do not know what it has cost or what has happened to redeem you. In the Old Testament, there are three words for redemption. They each have a specific meaning. The first word is substitution. You see, you cannot redeem your own life. You can't pay off the debt that you've incurred. You can't get rid of the guilt or the shame. You cannot do it. It's impossible. You could, you could try to be a good person for the rest of your days, but your past follows you. So what you need in order to redeem the guilt, the shame of your past is you need a substitute. And so what they did in the Old Testament is they took an animal, an innocent animal, and they transmitted their sin, their guilt, their shame onto that animal, and then they killed it. The problem is, the animal hadn't done anything. And them saying over the animal, you have my guilt, you have my shame, whether it's a goat or innocent lamb, whatever it might be, all it was was a picture. No sins were really being atoned for, and no guilt was being taken away. So you need a substitute like you. A substitute who can actually bear the sin and the guilt and the shame. So Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin in your place. He alone can substitute. No one else can take this guilt and shame away. I mean, you can keep trying to be a better person. It would be stupid, but you can keep trying to be a better person. Or you can say, I need a substitute. I need a substitute. But not only... In order to be redeemed, you have to have a redeemer. Somebody from your own tribe, from your own, you know, your own people has to rise up and have standing in the court of heaven. Because your life will be judged before, before the God of righteousness. Not your peers, not a jury of your peers, but the holiness of God. And so you don't have any standing in that court. You're guilty already. It's not innocent till proven guilty. It's guilty and guilty and guilty and guilty. And so you need a kinsman redeemer who will become your legal representative. But more than that, you see, not only does he represent you, he chooses to pay all your past debts for you. He will go to whatever lengths he has to go to pay off your slavery, to rescue you from your bondage. And then he also, in that court promises to provide for you for the rest of your life and he takes your worthless name and gives you his name which is above every other name so you have a substitute you have a redeemer but i think i like this third one you know flowing out i like this third one a whole lot you need a covering i don't know if you recognize it but there are no venial sins Every sin is a mortal sin. Every sin is a death to your soul. Every sin that you see is, on, is only the symptom, and behind every symptom is a root. And so you need a covering who can take every way in which you forfeited your life, every decision, every, 
every step that you took that was the wrong way. You need someone who can own the forfeit for you. If you don't know you forfeit it, listen to what we say sometimes. I don't know if I'll ever come back from that. I don't know if I'll ever get over that. I don't know if I have a future or not because of that. That's, that those are expressions of how I forfeited my life. You see, what it's saying is, I'm worthless, but I need to be priceless. So I need a covering. I need something priceless to cover my worthlessness. So Jesus, who deserved to be treated as the King of glory, chose to be treated as if He were your cancer, your immorality, your lying, your, your gossip, your murder, your anger. He just... He who deserved the glory took the glory. So that you who deserve the glory now gets all the glory. You who are worthless are now priceless. And there's no other way. Some people sometimes will say, man, you're rough on us on Sundays. Yeah, because you're broken. You're broken. You're wretched. You're bankrupt. But the Redeemer, who is priceless, has taken that worthlessness and covered it with His preciousness, and now you are priceless. But only by faith. Only by faith. You see, and that's the impulse. That's the motivation that takes the least of us now and says, wow, I have a substitute, I have a Redeemer, I have a covering. Do you understand right now in the bank is everything you need, but it's only activated by faith. Everything you need, a new name, a new life, a new power, a new structure, where your, your intentions become commitments and you become the best version of yourself is only accessed by faith. And so the least of us can access it. And sometimes the greatest of us fail to access because we don't think we need it. It's only when you recognize how broken you are. There's nobody in your family who has standing in the court. You don't have standing in the court. Your family's just as screwed up as you are. And they can't, they can't advocate for you because they can't advocate for themselves. But there is one who has said to you, I am closer than a brother. There is one who said to you, I am a friend who will let you know the plans I have for your life. There is one who has said, a friend, no greater friend than this, that, no greater love than this, that a friend laid down his life for his friends. Substitute, redeemer, covering. Will you stand with me? I think you're here today because God is trying to establish a new tribe of Rechabites. Risen Kingites, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I really believe those things that I've shared with you. The Word, your Word has power. 
structure makes you excellent. The idea of recognizing that listening is hard, but it's powerful. That commitments reveal the truest intentions of your heart. See, I believe you were called to greatness. I believe you're called to start a generation of righteousness. But I think it has to be decided. Lord, I will access all the redemption benefits, all the covenantal benefits. If that makes sense to you, would you just declare this with me? Lord Jesus, you are my substitute. Lord Jesus, you're my kinsman redeemer. Lord Jesus, you're my covering. See, I would ask you today, would you put a stake in the ground that says, though I was worthless, will you say it with me? Though I was worthless, the one who is precious has covered me with his priceless love. I am precious to him and my life is priceless. See, if you'll believe that and make that your commitment, feelings will follow. Feelings of security. Feelings of humility. Feelings of grace. Because you won't have to prove anything. He's already proven it to you. Therefore, it's proven for you. Lord, we seal what you're doing now in Jesus' name. Amen.